just want to start with uh, one note that somebody gave me about um, listening to talk and I mentioned um, also just sit as you are meditating listening to talk and the person thinks that she can't do both don't worry about it <laughs> that's fine you can just listen or what I meant uh, is that when I used to listen to Achin Sumedu or even anybody in the temple to teaching I don't have to be um, sort of constantly moving around to find out what the person is saying or you just let the words come through the ears. Yes, you don't have to think a lot about it. You don't have to get into great discussion of whether it's right or wrong. The idea is just let the, the sound of the voice come through. And as, as Ajahn Shah uh, used to say, whatever your uh, heart can hear, it will never, it won't be lost. It's like it will, you'll find it again. <laughs> right? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I never believed him myself, but <laughs> he said that. So, and I think he's, I mean, the, you know, again, it's in the, intuitively, I think he's right. It's like when it's like this, uh, it's difficult. I don't want to go into the heart energy and all that because it could be really confusing for you. But, uh, there's definitely a, a door, like a heart door. You know, if you're connected with, um, uh, you know, this heart door, and like when you have a teacher, for example, like Ajahn Sumedho, I was very connected with this. I loved him very much, you know, and I was really, I, lo I loved everything about him um, in terms of his uh, humor and depth and profundity of practice and so on. So no matter what he said, it didn't really matter so much, you know. It's like, yeah, I've heard it hundreds of million times, you know. But there was something that just moved the heart, move, 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 move one, you know. And so uh, it does not move in terms of getting really um, kind of high or anything like that. It just touch the truth, you know, touching the truth, touched truth, touching the truth, you know. It's like it don't make your little picture as you wish, you know. So, <clears throat> that's what I meant also when I said just when you meditate, just sit and just let the words come through and you don't have to do it like that. You can be really interested in questioning and sort of, you know, smiling and, you know, whoa, it's fine. It's all kind of, whoa, I don't understand what she's talking about. It's kind of just receive, I have to receive as well, you know, just like you have to receive my words. So, um, as you probably kind of got it by now, we don't really have a pre-planned talk, you know. I could, I mean, I would, I could, we could do that, but I really like myself. I'm quite addicted, I think, to the fact of the uh, improvising. I like the improvisation. And sometimes it's not the best talk, but it's something sometimes I reach, reaches out in a way that I personally feel don't always reach out when we stay up, sort of what I call on the top floor, when there's so much more conceptual and it's not that conceptual kind of be heartfelt, but it's more kind of global hearing, <laughs> global receiving. <coughs> so... 
So you can see on the retreat, it's just an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Retreats only existed. I mean, they started in Thailand. They never did retreats like this. Mahasi Sayadaw who started this retreat. Sri Lanka, you never did retreat like that either. So we are a kind of strange, strange phenomenon from the you know Western. I mean, sort of with the influence of I think Mahasi Sayadaw from the Burmese teacher that started this 10-day retreat, intensive. They used to call it intensive in America, but I used to laugh when I say intensive. They must be joking, because we used to do, you know, walking meditation, sitting, walking, sitting, sitting, all all day long for two months, you know, without gap, (laughs) gaps, nothing. So in America, when they used to call the monastic, monastic retreat, intensive retreat, I used to I used to be a bit conceited, you know, which means I said, oh, what do you think they're doing? Since, you know, you, you call that, you know, intensive? Well, wait until you do two or three months of that, then you'll know what that's really intensive. But anyway, now it does feel intensive to me. <laughs> Not that we don't have any retreats, but um, when you sit where I am, it's rather intensive. <laughs> But very pleasurable as well, so I don't have any problem, you know. But I look at you and I say, wow, it's amazing, you know, to be able to sit all day long and uh, walk and sit and walk. You know, if any of your friends saw you doing this, they say, whoa, this is, you know, they think they're really sane and you're absolutely mad, you know. (laughs) So it's wonderful to be eccentric in a Buddhist monastery, isn't it? Within the Buddhist monastery, Buddhist tradition is quite uh, unusual. But you realize that the reason why we have this kind of sustained practice, and I think Mahasi Sayadu was pretty enlightened being, I actually had a chance to do a retreat a long time ago with him, and uh, he looked rather kind of, uh, you know, cooled out, we would say, you know, cooled out. But, you know, as, I, as I'm considering what we're doing together here, it kind of make me reflect, in a way, on many things. And one of the things is that somebody um, asked me to talk about doubt, for example. So I doubt is one of the five hindrances, you know. So, and I was thinking, gosh, it's so um, important to do the groundwork of our knowledge of the mind and body because uh, a lot of our difficulty in perceiving life as it is has to do with um, not quite knowing how to handle thoughts, how to handle perception, how to handle the five khandhas, in other words. You know, we get very confused by one or the other. We have we think about one thing, but I contradicted by another thought, and remember what somebody else said, and you know, and and you turn into a big mountain of doubts, for example. But the other thing is, um, is a kind of relationship of detachment with our candors. You know how we. I was really, really happy to hear in the, in the interview. Um, how some of you have had really deep insight in the practice. It's very, really uplifting to hear that. But it makes me realize that um, 
as we go along the practice, you know, maybe some of you say, one, one day everything will be okay, and I'll be sitting here blissed out with no question, no doubt, no, no hindrances, no sloth and torpor, no restlessness, no greed. I'll just be seeing, you know, a lovely cake, and I'll be completely detached and dispassioned about it. I'll be seeing something really amazing, a car. I mean, if I was a man or, man or women, a beautiful car, and I have all the money in the bank to buy it, but I'll just look at it and just dispassionate and peaceful and calm and not really having one movement of my mind that goes, I must have that kind of happening. And for all of us, we can think of an object, a particular object that we really love to have right now, and you will say, oh, it's not just dispassionate in the sense I don't care if I have this or that. It's like you do care for the object, but you're quite happy not to get entangled with it. Well, just, it, you could wait for a long time, you know. Because there are many levels of understanding, in the sense that what I heard this afternoon is something that I'm very, uh, myself, I have experienced a lot, is that, and you don't see it in the book, by the way, they talk about Nibbana and Niroda and, uh, you know, and uh, Nibida, which have all the same root. You know, the, the cessation, the disenchantment, the cooling out of the mind. They don't tell you that once the mind is cooled out a little bit, all the, all, everything changes. Like, I used to be really excited about a good meal. And now, a good meal has become something very different. I mean, being an honest mendicant, I can suddenly, it just goes into the happiness of somebody offering me a meal rather than me feeling so happy about having the meal. Strange, isn't it? So you could say that the, the sensory pleasures have kind of shifted. It's more uh, kind of going into the happiness of somebody else offering me a meal than me. Of course, her happiness then turns into mudita, so we're both win-win happy. You know, we're both happy. But it's less than, oh, great, I'm going to have a meal, you know, it's fantastic, right, fantastic, you know, it's really nice. All my favorite things. I could make you laugh all, all day, all, all evening as well, from some of my experiences and stories, you know, but I have to kind of cut them a little bit, otherwise well, it, it, you can you might miss the whole teaching <laughs> by having too many stories. But just in terms of Nibida, I'm going to give you one story there. You know, maybe one or, well, probably several, but. <laughs> so, um, you know, just maybe, it's, you know, you might find this story helpful if it happened to you, do you understand? And we, you know, it's kind of normal. You probably have experienced this many times, but Krishnamurti, for example, one, was one of my great hero, you know, I just love his teaching, I loved his writing, I loved his mind. I thought he was a great, great being, enlightened being. I did not know what enlightenment meant, but somebody who knew about something that really interested me at the time, and I did not know much myself. But anyway, finally, finally, after being at Chetters for two or three years, two years, three years, I, a friend of mine, Thai friend of mine 
offered me to take me to Brookwood Park, where Krishnamurti had a school for children. And I was like the greatest deal of my life. At last, you know, I can see the Krishnamurti, the great man. So the nuns being very, very kind, they were not even jealous at all. Uh, Tanisha, I remember, cooks for me my favorite meal, because both of us, we were both quite greedy and good cooks. We're terrific cooks. Even Ajahn Vimalu reminded some of our friends here that I was a good cook at Forgotten. You know, after all these years of not cooking anything, I completely forgotten that I was a good cook, you know. And so um, she cooked this most gorgeous meal, you know, with everything we had, the larder. We didn't have much of Chetos, you know, it was pretty kind of poor larder. But she managed to gather everything she could to cook the thing I liked. So, and then, so it was a beautiful day. And then there was a little kind of corner at Chetos. We always into a damp, cold, miserable room, you know, kind of really... You know, had a fire, it was all wet, everything was kind of uncomfortable. But it was springtime, and there was a little corner outside the house where she brought the meals there, and I could sit there quietly on my own, which was a miracle. And I was facing the South Downs, which are very beautiful hills. I don't know if some of you know the South Downs are here, the hills that go down from, I think, Winchester to Brighton. In heaven. This is to for you to teach you how the mind functions in heaven. So everything was just perfect. Then the meal came and I looked at my alms bowl. I put everything that, you know, I kind of filled it up. You know, it's like those kids, I want to get everything. They're never going to eat it all, but they want everything. So I had all my favorite dish. I'm not going to bore you with the list, but... And as soon as I looked my, at my bowl, so I was being absolutely, totally blissed out, my mind said, oh dear, I won't be able to eat it all. <laughs> that was the first sentence, just a kind of, you know, kill joy. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be able to eat it all. So I forgot about that sentence and then just kind of carried on eating. And then eventually I went to Brookwood Park with our friend Noy Thompson. And I see Krishnamurti in the distance, and I'm really happy just to see him. And then, of course, he goes on to a kind of podium, and he starts giving the talk and all that. And I listen with great sort of passionate sort of, you know, interest. And then suddenly I hear some sound, and I, and I realize during the whole talk I had slept. I had slept the whole, well, I probably listened to about five, ten minutes max, but it was a whole hour of teaching. I slept prof profoundly, profoundly. So, fortunately, without a sense of humor in this life, you probably were dead on day two. You know, you need a little bit of sense of humor to be able to walk the path of non-attachment to self, mind, body, and spirit, and you know, the five candles, you need a great, you know, a great kind of store of humor. Because otherwise it would be very painful. <laughs> Can you imagine the disappointment and this? And I said, no, my stomach just was resting. 
<laughs> from this enormous meal I had before I went. <laughs> so I was disappointed, but, you know, for some reason I didn't make a problem. <laughs> and so life is often like that, you know. I still almost remember, sometimes I remember where I had a, I had a uh, he wasn't that young, I thought he was quite old actually, probably he was 20, I don't know, 27, 28, I was quite in love with, well love, it's not passionate love, you know, but I was very attracted to somebody, you know, when I was in France, and he came from the Jamaica, I remember, I didn't remember going out with a dark, you know, a, a black man, but suddenly I remember, I did actually, I did, yeah, and I was totally, you know, fascinated by this person, and I, I, I was going to have a, you know, I was going to prepare a meal for him and so on. He never turned up. Oh my God, that was so. so <laughs> I, did, I heard, I learned later on he was, you know, married, had kids and all that, you know, so maybe he was just being a bit ethical. <laughs> kind of thought twice what he was going to do with me. <laughs> maybe he had to be a bit careful. But anyway, that was a, this kind of disappointment of life, isn't it? I mean, there's many of disappointment in life like this, you know. And so, um, we, um, you know, we expect from life a huge amount, you know, and life is, you know, like one of my, of my friends, you know, uh, senior friends, I'm not going to give you any names or any country where this person is, so you want to, I don't want you to know, but who was telling me once, yeah, I just sunrise, life is just one, humiliation after another, and then you die. <laughs> That's what I mean by humor. <laughs> you know what he meant. You know, we don't always get it. There's something in us that gets it, and something in, in somebody else, they won't get it. For me, I immediately started bursting laughing, you know, because this is a part of detachment. Humor and detachment go together. Now, I'm going to give you another secret, one last one that I discovered not so long ago. It's about detachment. It has to do with, you know, suddenly letting go of things. And in a way that uh, we are very frightened to let go. That's why I'm sharing this in a way. We're, we're scared to let go because we're scared to move into the unknown. We're scared to be without the thing we loved. We're scared with, to be without the perception that we're familiar with. So, for example, I remember in Paris when I was uh, still a dancer at the time, I had friends and uh, their son was uh, was um, studying to be a um, a music uh, director, and uh, she was, uh, you know, the, the, his mother, my friend, was adore this son, you know, and both of the both of them were very interested in Buddhism. This couple, in, in probably they were in the fifties, sixties, you know. And they were both very interested in the spiritual path, you know, Buddhism in particular. And, uh, you know, I remember her, I, I was actually, uh, no, that was a time, I was interested also in, in Buddhism. I think I had done a retreat maybe when I met her. And um, she said, you know, but she was Russian, you know, kind of white Russian, and she had a strong Russian accent. She was so funny. And she was saying, but how can I detach myself from my son? I love my son. How can I be detached? So at the time, I didn't have much of an answer, you know, except I could feel that, uh, 
you know, she, it, it was very confusing, and I think it's, it was confusing for many people, and it can be confusing for a long, long time, that the non-attachment is, is kind of linked together with being cold, feelingless, emotionless, blank, you know, kind of tepid, lukewarm, miserable, in brief, you know. And actually, I discovered, but this is a kind of, on, on, as you, in a way, as you walk this path, there's something that mature in you that you will never think you would see at, at some point. It was very clear that when you, for example, when you let go of attachment to people, you know, actually what happens, you love them a lot more than if you were attached to them. You actually, it's a different kind of love. It's a free love. What I mean by this, you truly love them the most deeply, but without, without the kind of, um, you know, the, the imbalance or the neurotic patterns of your attachments. Because attachment is quite neurotic in some ways. If you look at what they make you do, <laughs> it's not always that clear, do they? Is it? You know, when you are attached to something, you can be really become very selfish, very possessive. You can be jealous. You can be, you know, frightened. You, all kind of things manifest when you are attached to things. We never really think carefully about that, you know. So non-attachment, you you know, goes together. Do I really want? To? It's not conscious, of course. I'm I'm going to lose lose all my neuroses. All the thing I like, all my crazy, uh, you know, sort of take on life. I'm going to lose all that. If I'm not attached to my partner, maybe I don't want him or her anymore. That's how we think. And then we get attached to each other, and then it's like a complete control freak pattern, you know. If she does this, I hate her. If I, he does that, I hate him. If she behaves like this, I will stop her from doing it, or the same both ways, you know. If the person goes too long, too far, you know, somewhere, you start worrying about them, and they start worrying about you. I mean, so many things happen through our attachments. Have you noticed how neurotic we can get? So, that's what I mean. When, you, when you're really not attached anymore, in the way, in the, in such a way, then you actually, for me, I really love people, but it's not just one person. It's love for this being here. But the love is here. Do you understand? You don't need to have extra love. It's full of it. The heart has got lots of love. You don't need to worry about it. Right? So sometimes you may fall in love with somebody. That's okay. Not a problem. But you need to be aware what comes with a package. <laughs> Could cost a lot to our freedom, doesn't it? Not just the freedom on a you know physical level, but also the freedom on a spiritual level. You know, being able to act according to the truth that you know, act in a way that is has integrity, is in harmony with what you think is best to do, to act, and so on. But a lot of the time, because our lack of detachment, non-attachment, peace, coolness, 
mixes um, see things in a very distorted way. So that was the third secret. When you're not attached, you love more deeply people. Because they feel free. They feel free. But having said that, it's really difficult. I can say that myself in a monastery. I have an easy situation to see that. So I'm not expecting you to have an easy time. Monastery is like uh, some people used to call it the greenhouse, the, the Arahant greenhouse. <laughs> I remember hearing this in 1980. Ajahn Tiradamo, <laughs> we just started, you know, this is Arahant kind of greenhouse, kind of growing Arahant. But at least those people who live in a monastery can help you maybe to understand the problems, you know, of the mind at another level, you know, maybe closer to home, you know, closer to this place. And also, even though we don't have any relationship, any intimate relationship or anything like that, we live with a lot of people quite intimately, you know, because we in, we share the same life, we share the same aspiration, we meet, we work together, we, and, and, and so interact with each other. So we have a lot of relationship, kind of life is made up of a lot, really, a lot of relationship in this life. You know, it's not free from that. And maybe that's one of the greatest lessons in this life in community is that you learn the skill of relating to each other, which is, uh, it's taken us many years, many years to come to a, balance in our relationship with each other. It's really hard because the monastery comes from Asia, it comes from a tradition that is Asian. A monastery, this monastery comes also from, a, you know, culture that is Asian, where a hierarchical system is very familiar. You don't have, you know, any problem in Asia. People have a hierarchical system from the baby, babyhood. You know, they kind of bow in Sri Lanka, they bow to their parents, they used to do a little gatha expressing gratitude and thankfulness for, to their parents, you know. Then you have the, the older sisters or the older brother, and then you have mom and dad, and then you have grandma and grandpa, and so on, and all of them, you have the sense of natural respect. Whether you like it or not, you learn to respect these people, even if you hate them, I guess. I'm sure as a little girl, you probably know all the sister, you probably hate her at some point. She's telling you what to do and you don't want to do it, but you're still trained to respect these people. So when they come to the monastery and have senior nuns like me, it's perfect for me. It's like really nice. It's really smooth. You know, I don't have to worry about them. They know what to do. And they're not getting really kind of, I was going to say a rude word, but I have to be careful, you know, really annoyed. It begins with a P. And they're really annoyed with with you because I would never say that, of course, in public, just with my friend. <laughs> but um, you know, they they really, um, you know, for for Western women, for example, it's really difficult because we don't have that at all, do we? Do what you want. You know, your parents teach you how to be free and free spirited and so on. And, get on with life and uh, think for yourself and so on. So 
when you have suddenly a hierarchical system, it's, it's like you do it's years of reactivity, you know, and the one at the top was me, me from the beginning. It's like you have to be, you know, taking on board all this kind of reactivity plus yours, which, you know, not particularly easy either. So, um, this kind of culture that we have undertaken here is not an easy one to, uh, you know, to adopt in our life as a kind of daily routine. Yeah. But well, I'm talking about relationships. So, but what we have learned over the years is what I've learned, I could say, over the years is that this hierarchical system, even though, uh, you know, I never had any, you know, really um, senior nun above me. She let me down in 1987, uh, just about, I don't know if I really forgave her for that. She died. Sister Rojana, she was much older than all of us, and she was in front of me, so it was really nice. I never really had to worry about people because they let me leave, they left me alone. <laughs> they didn't you know, kind of looked at me and hoped that one day I would satisfy their needs or their wishes or their, you know, their persona as a nun. You know, a persona. We start with a persona at first. We're not a nun yet. We just kind of create an image in ourselves often. Anyway, so this relationship of respect, I think it's something that's not always very understood in our uh, culture. You know, we just me first, and you say, you know, you first, me first. So this first and first, we don't always get on very well. That doesn't work often very well. But over the years, I noticed for me that we need those, you know, Asian nun, a senior or not, you know. Because I remember one of the senior nuns was so sweet. I mean, so she's from Cambodia, Jambudi Palace, all of you know her. She trained the junior uh, Anagarika, the Anagarikas, and I remember she said something that we never really thought of, you know. We never dare thinking about it because we might be slapped in the face, you know, by the junior ones, you know, if we said that. She just kind of put, put quite a lot of energy to tell them that, you know, if you really want to get something from your senior nun, you know, some a gift from life or dharma, whatever it is, a gift of kindness or friendliness, friendship and so on, you have to be kind to her too. Do you know? So if I told any, me, I could never say that, you know, because I would feel like I'm a demanding neurotic mother, you know, authoritarian and demonic, to ask them to be kind to me. Well, she didn't have any qualms because she had children and all that, and she was raised like that. She had a wisdom of the right relationship. We like spend years in psychotherapy and therapy and all kind, you know. See people today. I saw two women, you know, with their hands toward the sea, toward the ceiling. <laughs> That's the sky. And part of my cynical mind said, "Well, what they should be meditating, you know." But then suddenly I had this kind of vision that really the whole world has you know, has a way of celebrating this meditative mind, you know. So I thought, I felt totally at peace. I said, why not? You know, we could be just kind of doing little things like this for an hour. <laughs> just anything, you know, some level. But we are just calm and peaceful like this. You know, in fact, in Thailand, you have teachers. You're quite creative. You know, 
it's not super creative, but you never hear about it here. You know, it's like one teacher who was a teacher of Tit Christopher Titmus. I don't know if some of you know him. Anybody know Christopher Titmus? Yeah. So he was, um, he had a very enlightened nun who came to spend a few months with us several times, you know. And uh, his technique was just to lift a hand up, uh, arms up and down. So you just meditated like that. Now that's and you know, Westerners watching that thing, mad, <laughs> madness, triple by hundreds, madness. What it is, it's actually the mind is meditating on the movement of the arm. Do you understand? You can use mind, you can develop mindfulness with anything. Do you understand? It's the mind observing what's going on. Now, there was another one we absolutely adored, one of the most wonderful teachers, Lumpur Dun as well. He's got his name is also, and he had, um, he was meditating like this. You know, he was a really enlightened being, I have no doubt. And he, he, he had this technique. He, he did like this, like that, like that, and then this one, like that, like that, like this, down. So that was his meditation. So just for you to understand, you can meditate with anything. Do you understand? You could be just doing this, you know, for an hour. And you feel the sensation of the arm, that's all. You're aware. It's your awareness that's developed and cultivated. Yeah? I mean, people, teacher will tell you you can meditate anywhere, you can be aware anywhere. But just having a little simple gesture like this, it's really quite good. It's like a mantra. So there are many ways that we can relate to our practice and to each other. And I like to just to go back to this um, respect and loving kindness, you know, and kindness. So I remember when Ajahn Brahmavara, Ajahn Bodhipala, mentioned that to the Anagarika, I was so amazed, you know. They'd been trained to be kind with me. And natural, you know, not like, thank me for that, you know, I'm good enough for you to do that. No, that was my projection, of course, you can understand. I had no idea what was going on in their mind, but I just got the feeling, you know, maybe they, they didn't want it, you know. So fortunately, I've gone beyond that now. But, you know, <laughs> the, the, the thing of you expect people to be kind to you, but are you kind to them? Now I'm changing the subject a little bit. You expect people to be really respectful of you. But are we respectful of ourselves? In fact, it comes straight from here. It's not like I have to sort of um, cultivate respect for others necessarily, but I have to first of all respect this human being. And it takes a long time to respect oneself. Once you respect yourself, you find it's easy to respect others, because others are just like you. Do you understand? Others suffer, others want to be happy, others want to be satisfied, others want to get what they want, just like me. So, you know, it was really, it took me a long time to even do an intellectual, I knew the whole theory and I... No, I, I, I saw it many times, but to actually be natural with that, to see it really quickly and to relate all the time with people in that kind of natural human understanding way, it's not easy. Yeah?
So I found this uh, lovely crossroad. I mean, sort of uh, the, the the kind of um, you have a a word in American or pollinating. You live in America, There's a pollen, you know, that thing that get pollination in American. Yeah. So cross pollination. This like the American words. I remember used used that a lot. And so with the Asian tradition and the Western tradition, there's a lot of cross-pollination. You know, we kind of share a lot of things and create new things out of that. So I notice in the Sangha, you know, when um, there's a lot more kindness and respect of each other. Right? Why? Not because we are emotionally and passionately more loving to each other, but because I think... Um, maybe because I told them <laughs> at the beginning that, you know, for me, if there was no respect, and I mean, whether it's a senior nun respecting the junior anagarika or junior anagarika respecting the senior nun, if that is not there, there's nothing that can actually move from that, you know. We're just like beasts together because the sangha, the life, the dhamma that we study, the a process of energetic transformation, you know, can is very intense. So sometimes the anger that you just have a little anger because you're thinking about the next film you'll see tonight. So it's kind of balanced really quickly. Well, I never mind her. I'll have a nice time tonight. You know, this kind of compensation all the time right? that goes on. But we have nothing. You know, I can't think of a good dinner I'm going to have with friends or or film or going dancing or whatever, you know, something fun to do. Not that going dancing was not something I really liked particularly, but, you know, you can think of something pleasant, really fun to do. So the the energy can be really quite violent, even in ourselves. You know, and so if you feel like when you go out of the monastery after the retreat and people don't understand how saintly you become inside, they don't notice that you have stars inside kind of flickering inside your heart. No? <laughs> you know, they don't see that. Well, it's probably because they are preoccupied with their own problems. <laughs> Nothing personal, you know. But without that, life is pretty kind of miserable. You know. And I noticed, you know, as soon as the anagraph, it was such a nice feeling to feel that they had been trained by a nun to appreciate the fact that everybody is human. Everybody loves to be respected. Everybody loves to be t treated kindly. Everybody loves uh, being sort of um, uh, appreciated. Not you ask Yanagarika to tell you I appreciate you, but just a sense, it's energetic, you know, a sense of softness between people, a gentle softness. Makes a big difference, you know. And people are very sensitive to these things, you know. You think, oh, it's just, it's just it's sort of a hardcore young type, you know, that just don't feel anything. But don't believe it. The mind is much bigger than what we see. And so I think developing kindness maybe is one of the first steps on the path, you know, to be able to be with oneself without... Um, having the mind moving in all direction in a negative way. 
to be able to treat oneself kindly, respectfully, and appreciatively. It's easier for me here, because people are not into developing competitiveness, for example. And there's no exams at the end of the year that you kind of pass your first year and you can be sort of rewarded with maybe 10 bars of chocolate <laughs> or a new robe or whatever, you know. So, I'm uh, just going back to Nibida. Yeah. So, when you practice, um, you know, at first maybe you feel very confident to go on this path. You feel you find a way, you know, it's like the way and the only way, and you start being a complete sort of um, obsessed Buddhist. I want to convert everybody into Buddhism. You have fundamentalist Buddhists as well, as fundamentalism everywhere, you know who think that if you're not a Buddhist, you're an idiot, you know, not like them. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, you just have missed the best path on earth if you're not a Buddhist. So that doesn't make a lot of friends, does it, to think like that? Fortunately, we have had a gap with the, all this interface kind of activity that has been going on for 30 years, you know, with all the different face meeting and relating to each other with friendliness and respect. But as we go along, you know, um, suddenly the landscape change, you know. It's like you get, at first you get really overwhelmed with joy, happiness and faith, you know. You say, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, you know. And it's like a love affair, you know, after a week you'll start looking at all the things that's wrong. And then, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you're encouraged to carry on. Otherwise, you might just um, abandon the project altogether quickly. That's why my sister is like that. <laughs> she says, like, can you go? So, not the sister in the monastery, but my blood sister. <laughs> and so, um, how do we deal with the time when you have like a, a deep, you know, a dip? The, the going down, you go up, elated, and inspired, and so and then down. You, know. you come out of the retreat, I am going to do meditation every day now. You know, every day for at least an hour and a half <laughs> without moving, you know. And if I am really good, I can even do it the same in the evening. So you start, big project, you know. You don't know you're doing a big project right now, you're into something. It's just, it's covered with this incredible energy of faith, love, and passion about the Buddha Dhamma. Then, of course, you know what happened. Next week, so it's not dwindling a little bit. You only do an hour, an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> then an hour, then, you know, two months later, you've just given up on Buddhism altogether. <laughs> And decided that really it's just for the religious bigots, you know, not me. So this amazing kind of insight you had, this amazing kind of realization that that was a path and a fantastic path, and then you felt, I just want to be more 
into the bhakti yoga, much more that face, you know, and uh, sort of passions and um, love, you know, I just want to be like just one with God. We had a head of department in Bristol University be, from being sort of the supervisor of my friend Caesar's was a Tibetan nun. He just he had to he left and he became a Christian. So this kind of bhakti devotional aspect, you know, sometimes that's missing. In Buddhism we can feel something missing, but the bhakti aspect, devotional, you know, love. You know when I had talked to you about my little Virgin Mary, like uh, little icons, I think it was a bhakti little golden thing that kind of touched my heart and I said, you know, I'm hard like stone, you know. And of course, thanks to Thomas Merton, fortunately my memory is not good. I don't have a little story, but he wrote a little poems about it is, I mean, I'm just, I will maybe bring it to you. It's a beautiful poem. It is when the when the heart is as hard as stone that we go know God or something like that, you know, that that's where they touch the the love of God. But I will bring it to you. But then that's how I felt at the time that year. I remember I felt God, you know, I can't stand Buddhas and all that sort of thing. Do you know all this? I just want love and sort of being one with uh, something, you know. I don't have to think. It's more like, I don't want to think. I just want love, that's all. I don't want to think about this and that, be rational anymore, and so on. I just want to forget myself and, and to just kind of love God, that's it. I'm sure many of us feel that, don't you, sometimes, yeah? So to, rather than to go through the list of Buddhism and the, you know, the kind of, you know, sitting for hours in meditation, <laughs> watching your brain kind of regurgitating old story again and again. <laughs> it takes courage to be a Buddhist, don't you think? <laughs> a Vipassana Buddhist. <laughs> because something in you must be driving you. What is it? What is it? Is there something that moves you to become, to, to spend hours sitting on a cushion? Observing your mind and its madness. So, what is it that motivates me? Well, you know, you could see it's something you're confident in something, you have faith in something. Don't even know what it is. But you have faith. But it's not just faith. You also, some of you have practiced long enough to know that, you know, the law of cause and effect. When you do this, then you get that. When you do that, then you get this. Or you could say that, that, this, this. So you see the result, you know. And sometimes we, uh, you know, I, I know myself, I get very motivated when I see the results are good. You know, what I do and I get good results. So I might get attached to results. And the results are not so visible because you get used to results. You know, at some point you don't even see them. At the beginning you feel, oh yes, this is marvelous. You know, I feel so much brighter. So much generous in the rain the day I feel peaceful and calm, and then you get used to it. And it goes a bit in kind of blunt and gray and dull, you know. You don't see it anymore. That's what we need to begin again, again and again. And you know what dukkha is for? Is to wake you up to this sort of to the mind falling asleep. It's a normal kind of way of the mind. You know, you get used to it, don't see it anymore. 
And it's good because in a way, uh, sometimes we have horrible noise in us, in our life, you know, horrible. You get used to it and you don't hear it anymore, you know. It's like this. Some people live near very noisy places. Get used to it. Don't see, don't hear it, you know. So we need to renew ourselves again and again. We need to renew our intention, our interest, our, um, you know, chanda. And um, what happens as you go along, you know, the path, you find that certain things you love have no interest for you anymore. I mean, Ajahn Sumedhi used to tell us, you know, how long do you want to, you know, when you're four-year-old, you can have your little doll and house and pretend you are mom and dad and so on. But when you're 20, you're just not that bothered with your little doll and house and, you know, you just can't be bothered. So you... No interest, nothing moves you for little girl, not for me. Well, you know, with the path of practice, at some point, you just realize that uh, there's something in us that wake up to the fact that you want to live with a human being that is really uh, comfortable, you know, that feels good. A human being that feels peaceful that feels happy, peaceful. And I notice in my experience then the relinquishment of things come easily when suddenly the quality of your life is more important than my greed and my desires. And the quality of my well-being physically is more important than me doing things that excite or irritate me or make me angry or makes me, um, you know, miserable, depressed, or so on. There's a, an appreciation of this uh, kind of home that we have here. I notice that. I drink one cup of coffee, sometimes two, but it quite not half a cup of coffee sometimes. And I realize, naturally, I don't want more. You know, even, you know, at some point, many years ago, I couldn't maybe thought, if I like something, I have to have it quite often. Now, because of the, you know, you consider your well-being, the well-being of this body and the well-being of the mind and of your life here, really more important than just getting what you want. That helps you along the way to let go of things that you thought were very important in the past. Do you understand? So you don't get everything by reading books and you don't get everything by just doing a retreat. It's a subtle process, quite deep and quite profound, of changes in the mind and body and heart that little by little um, transform mind yourself. And then also something that we sometimes ignore completely is I, I had a sense myself from very early on, even before I was a nun actually, that there was, um, you know, I didn't call it mine particularly, but I noticed that um, it's a bit like help yourself and God will help you. Do you know what I mean? When you are willing to open your heart to the Dharma and interested in the Dharma, you receive a lot of help. I don't know where it's coming from, you know, I don't want to speculate on that particularly. But I do trust that. You know, I do trust you find the right book, you open the right door, you meet the right people, you have a conversation with somebody, you have 
something else. All these are part of your past, you understand, not just in a ticking sort of on Anapanasati for five hours, you know. Life is there itself is a big, like you could say, big mind, you know. Provides us with a lot of help if you are willing to listen, you know. I remember I was very, um, something had happened, one of those tragic moments of rage about something, I can't remember, I, I do remember, but I'd rather not share it. I remember vividly, and I remember I said, I just was about going to say, I'm not going to spend the Vasa here, I'm leaving. Of course, I heard my mind. That's one of the gifts and treasures that you can heal your mind, actually, as somebody else talking, you know. And I was so upset about something, I closed my, shut myself in a room, and I didn't come out, I didn't want to eat, I didn't want to do anything, I just wanted to be alone. So, but, you know, I also was in a kind of meditative, contemplative, mindful state, because I was going through such a kind of upset about something, and distressed. I felt very distressed about the situation. And it's really interesting. Somebody would bring me food, by the way. I was not completely left abandoned with nothing. And a few days' time from that time, I was going to teach in Bath. I remember I had to go to Bath and teach a weekend retreat. So I was really annoyed. You know, I said, I can't stand. You know, I don't want to. I'm going to leave. You know, not leave the road, but just like get to leave this monastery. can't stand it. And then... As I was closing my eyes like this, I had a little, uh, like we call a nimita, you know, like a, 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 an image coming to my mind. It's a really sweet image. So the image was like this, so not a big thing, you know, it's not like Buddha in technical or anything like that. It was just like myself i was like in a in a in a kind of imagine a, a light bulb you know a huge light bulb black pitch black and in that light bulb there was a little a rectangle of pure blue light blue like the sky a beautiful blue sky you know just a rectangle open and there was a little message that came to me one of those intuitive messages he says uh, something like, that blue window, Sundara, is your suffering. That suffering. Now, I must have been well connected with that sentence because I knew my suffering wasn't the black part I was in. This blue window was a result of enduring suffering. Like the black was the mind. And the blue window was a more enlightened aspect of the mind, you know, like free. It took that suffering to get a little window of blue, the, the sky outside this mind that's contracted and tense and sort of suffering and despairing and so on. It was just saying, this is your mind, that's, you know, it's hard to explain these things that are so intuitive and completely verbless, you know, wordless. It was this image. I, for me, I understood, you know, immediately, and I felt very happy. 
you don't basically the the message was you're not suffering for nothing sundara look you're getting a little window on the sky of your mind you understand so i felt really rewarded for my misery and then i went off teaching and there was no problem but sometimes we fear suffering you know we fear um, being kind of let down and so on but we don't understand that the suffering can be can be seen in a different way you know i've had many experiences like that because i had a lot of suffering even i remember chansomedo when i was with him in america i had to give a talk in front of a large group of people in the, him next to me and then he had to give a talk after me and then he said yeah chansonora I mean, with a sister Sundar in those days, yeah, I felt, oh gosh, you know, it's so condescendent of him to talk to all everybody about my suffering. He said, Ajahn Sundara suffered and had a lot of suffering and it wasn't always her fault, with American accent, you know, wasn't always her fault, you know. But this suffering for me was never a problem, you know. Ajahn Amar used to call me there, we used to teach together, and I sometimes he said, like, that she's a queen of Duke Queen, you know. <laughs> But because I knew my dukkha was great transformation, I wasn't going to let it go just like that, you know. And my relationship to dukkha was very different from many, most people, you know. For me, I knew dukkha was the end of dukkha. <laughs> I wouldn't create it particularly, I wouldn't look for it. But when it came, I was really, really keen as a nun. My life was made such I could look at it, do you understand? And, and may, you know, turn it into something that was liberating. But I don't think I could have could have done it as a lay person in the world with the multiplicity of distractions and you know sense objects, sense essential sensory experience. Now I was asked to talk about doubt, as you said, I said at the beginning. <laughs> Somebody, the person who asked me, is going to be a bit disappointed. But we've got, we've got ten minutes. <laughs> that. So it's really appropriate. It's also part of this detachment and um, uh, kind of um, non-attachment and cooling down the mind that's non-attached. You know. And Achen Sumedho can see these things very well in people, you know. Because I worked a lot with the five hindrances myself. I was absolutely adamant these five hindrances, I knew they could be there, but I didn't have to follow them. So, to be able to not follow something, you have to know it really inside out. Do you know? You have to know its color, its form, its shape, how it affects you. You have to study. That's why we study the mind. So at some point we don't follow the mind anymore because we study, we know it inside out. You understand? If you don't know your mind, you're still a victim of your mind. Right? So I remember, you know, that's for the person who asked me. I said, one day I was with Ajahn Sumedho in America and we were, he was teaching a retreat and we were with Ajahn Amaro, myself and another nun and was, we were helping him with interviews and so on. And then we had tea once with, um, with him and all of us and all the retreatants, about 60, 70 retreatants at the Angela Center. 
And um, I remember one clever kind of participant said, Sister Sundara, I could not call Ajahn yet, Sister Sundara, did you have any doubt in your you know, life as a nun? And that was like 1990, and I'd been sort of in a Sangha as a summoner since 79. So did you ever have a doubt? Did you ever doubt? So Chen Sumidu was sat, seated right next to me, more or less, and I said, came out straight away, I said, I've doubt about everything. Everything I have had a doubt. Even my teacher. Right next to him. That's why you have a pretty enlightened teacher. It's really nice to hang out with this person. And uh, he just smiled, just a smile like this. But later on, he actually told me that was a wonderful answer. I'm not praising myself. I'm just t telling you that when somebody knows that uh, the kind of the doubt you're talking about is having seen doubts in a detached way, do you understand? When you see something in a detached way, and you can only talk really with your Buddhist friend about these things, I know some of you, maybe your wife will not understand, your boss will not understand, but amongst ourselves we can understand these things. When you have a perspective, on, for example, on doubt, you know, then life gives you a real good testing time. Because doubt, as I said to you about how many times I threw the paper in the bin, do you remember that? Was it you or somebody? You know, another teaching. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about my doubt ever before during this week? No? No? Oh, well, maybe I should stop. No? Oh, gosh. Right, okay. At 1980, then, here we are. Uh, Ajahn decided to go to Thailand. And he takes with him a little group of people. And me, uh, my, my world was dance, you know, and uh, I was, and, but I had a bad back. And the office was the only place which had a bit of heat. So I was invited to work in the office, which was a really a thing for me now. Working in the office is okay. But at the time, I was very proud and kind of conceited. And working in the office wasn't really a not so kind of glamorous or just sweeping leaves like a Zen nun, you know. So, but anyway, I went in the office and I had to do some letter answering people, you know, kind of official, what I call official letters. For me, it was very official. Not my friend's letter, just people, visitors and people asking for whatever questions. And um, I remember, I thought, well, gosh, I'm, I'm English, I'm not even... I'm not. I'm French. I'm not even English. What am I going to write? Official letters, you know. I kind of panic, you know. So I wrote one letter one day. I had a real teaching moment. I wrote one letter and looked at it. No, no good. In the bin. No, no. I was just hoping nobody looked at me at that moment. After the fifth time. No, but you know something in me is working beyond my control. I thought, let's find out the first letter and see what it's like. <laughs> now, don't ask me who's talking and who's thinking for me. And I looked at the first letter, and actually, it was the nicest one. And that moment, I understood what anatta is about. What I mean by this, doubt was anatta. It just 
was a push button things, you know. It doesn't need you, just need an object. <laughs> so it's just a, a food, food for, for doubt, you know. And it was like, every time I look at it, I didn't even see the letter. The doubt came straight away, immediately the perception, no, no good. This is something important for your life, isn't it? How you look at yourself, others, and situation with a filter of doubt, for example, or the filter of anger, or the filter of greed. You don't see things as they are because they filter through. You see? So I realized doubt was just an automatic button, you know. That was a relief. It wasn't mine. What I mean by this, it was not connected with my will or my, you know, what I wanted. It's just a push-button habit, that's all. Now, it was in this incredibly kind of bizarre situation that I saw this. So I, maybe I, other places I might not be able to notice it. And then you begin to see, you have just a, a mind that habitually doubts. It, you, it's in the background for a long, long, long time. You know, you don't notice you're doubting. And suddenly, you're in a situation and you can see you don't have confidence. Doubt and confidence are opposite, aren't they? Your lack of confidence doesn't give you a chance to um, notice doubt. You're just kind of completely enthralled with this habit. You don't see maybe you're questioning yourself in such a way that you can even kind of underestim uh, underestimate yourself but also, um, you know, undermine yourself. You can undermine again and again yourself by having doubts. So, you know, at some point, I want to say to the person who asked the question, actually, doubt does die. Doubt does become completely redundant. It doesn't mean one does not question about things. You can still question. But a doubt which is based on lack of confidence disappears. The doubt which is creative, like opening up question, doesn't have to go. But when you get more confident in yourself, then the doubt doesn't have room there and it doesn't mean that you don't question maybe whether you did it wrong or right you know but you do it from a different place you don't need, you do it from a place that include conf, includes conf, confidence you understand you're confident to ask you don't undermine yourself with a ha bad habit that makes sense so that will come again and again and again. You know, I'd had doubt about this tradition, I had doubt about my teacher, I had doubt about everything. But fortunately, I had seen that doubt is something that just wants its food. And it did not mean, it, this did not mean that I had to forget about it, but the doubt was not what was going to lead my mind, do you understand? What was going to lead my mind is to let go of doubt and see what happened. 
What is my relationship to the situation I'm doubting after I let go of doubt? Hmm? Because then you have a wider vision. You're not stuck up in a little bubble of doubt that just paralyzes your understanding and seeing things. You understand? Yeah? Make sense? No? Are you somewhere else? <laughs> Are you doing travel? <laughs> yeah, travel. <laughs> So, for summoners or people living in a monastery, you know this, you can have so many doubts about everything. And it's up to us, it's up to each individual to see doubts as a hindrance, like the five hindrances, or to believe in it and get basically sucked in and maybe at some point you have to really act on this doubt, you know. Like I, one thing I noticed, the reason maybe why I'm still here, is that I always was I was always aware that if you believe a train of thought for too long, what will happen is that you will be basically moving with that thought. You understand? It will take you where you want to be. So you have to be careful because maybe you don't want to be where that thought is taking you. You understand? So that's one way of using doubt. Doubt is okay, but don't use doubt as your doorway to make a decision. You know, because that might not be the right decision. Wait until doubt has gone. And we tend to think that if doubt has gone, then I will be lost. I won't have anything to doubt about. I won't be able to, I don't know, we have faith in doubt, so much faith, you know. Funny, you know, that's why we have our dear friend, what's his name, um, wrote a book called The Face to Doubt. What is the name? Anybody remember? Scholar, English scholar, who's quite well known, meditator as well. Oh God, I forgot his name. You don't remember this book, The Face to Doubt? The one who used to have a Tibetan course at uh, Sharpen. Um, oh gosh, name it is Stephen Batchelor, yeah. So he he played on word like that, The Face to Doubt, you know. I don't know what was his problem, but obviously he had a problem with faith and doubts, one or the other. But <laughs> I read it, actually. I read the book. And he had a doubt, and he, he felt he had to have faith in his doubts. <laughs> he had a doubt, a serious doubt, I think. I remember. I thought it was not as impressive as I thought. You know, I thought it was going to be a profound realization or something. He was just looking at his doubt for, you know, about the tradition he was part of, or, and maybe he felt that not being able to doubt, you see, not having the, not giving himself the permission to doubt, he suddenly had this great, maybe, insight, the face to doubt. Wow, you know, I can doubt now. Wow, it's amazing. Yuppie, you know. I've given myself permission to doubt. Mm -hmm. 
So Achen Sumedu wasn't have didn't have any problem. You can doubt about everything. That's fine, just as long as you see it with <laughs> with mindfulness and awareness and as it is, you know, rather than believe it, believe in it. So life is out of control at some point, you know, because I remember as a group of nuns, you know, there was always a constant remembering, so I think I should stay here or, you know, there were so many crises along the way, you know, it's like, is that the right place, the right tradition, the right monastery, the right teacher, you know, the right senior nuns, the right this, right that, you know. And I remember, because we were a bunch of women who were quite quite fun to be with in many ways, you know, it's like, one of them, I remember, I was so looking at the I Ching, you know, I Ching, remember, you know, I Ching, numerology, all that kind of thing, you know, sort of psychotherapeutic bubble stuff, and so on. And then, at some point, one of them said, gosh, you know, I've been reading this I Ching, you know, I Ching, you say I Ching in English or I Ching? I Ching, this I Ching. And uh, by an American woman, very nice. And so what she wrote was beautiful, you know. But always, for everything, you have to wait and be patient. And she said, I can't move. She's always asking us to wait and be patient. You know, it's like, what do we do? <laughs> Eventually, this, this non moved, you know, but without, naturally, just organically. She eventually, she moved on. And she had a doubt, you see. All of us had a doubt. And it's difficult sometimes to go through that because you feel you're shaking the boat, you see. You're shaking the status quo when you start having doubts. Especially your teacher, if you turned up, get, came into the Sangha, you know, with starry eyes about your teacher, um, you know, and then you get disappointed because, you know, those things that suddenly, oh my God, you know, disappointment, you know, sort of. Deception, you feel like, oh, he didn't pull his socks properly. You can use it metaphorically or, <laughs> or physically with his real socks, you know. But, oh, maybe, you know, he dribbled when he ate. That's no good. Buddha says if you're mindful, you don't dribble when you eat. You know. So there's many things in life that I'm totally disappointed. And I love this monk said, you know, life is one humiliation after another, and then you, and then you just die. <laughs> because actually the mind that can see that is a very joyful mind, you understand? <laughs> you cannot see this with a, a mind attached to itself. It's not possible. You say it when you really see the, the mind in a state of delusion, you know, constantly disappointed, constantly miffed, constantly hurt, constantly moving and moaning and grumbling and blah, 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 and all that sort of thing, gossiping and creating misery constantly, you know. You just have a good laugh with this mind. You know, at some point you say, yeah, I hear you. I understand you. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. So this is doubt, which is compared in one of the water simile of doubt, it's a similar water for those five hindrances, which maybe I'll mention a bit more. And for doubt, it's basically, you know, muddy water. The, f the first hindrance is something you can go to bed with. <laughs> you know, uh, attachment or desire for sense pleasure. It's like 
water full of beautiful colors, you know, and you look so fascinating with the beautiful colors, you can't see anything through. So you can't do your vipassana proper, you know, because you can't see anything except the colors. You're like, oh, how wonderful, wonderful, wonderful colors. Mm-hmm. And you got all that kind of mess underneath, you know. And then anger is compared to boiling water. So you do feel, we feel like boiling when we are angry. We feel like you could heat up a whole room easily with your anger and turn into rage. And then you have um, sloss and torpor, it's like stagnant water. And then restlessness and worry, which is in Pali, I bring you the name in Pali, just saying it, you feel like restless, you know, you start feeling. It's a wonderful Pali name, isn't it? It's all restlessness and worry. So that's compared to um, uh, being kind of blown by the wind, you know, constantly moving with the wind. And then the last one, it's uh, you know, muddy water. You don't see anything through muddy water. So a lot of our meditation practice is about, you know, when you when you meditate and you have just a reminder, you're reminded to stay present, stay present, stay present. It's mostly to clear the water. Do you understand? You clear, you kind of, you don't liberate anything yet. You just clear the water so you can see more clearly. Do you understand? When you use a meditation object, just clear. Let let the all the sediments settle down, settle. And I love when uh, Pema children used to use this image, you know, and I remember she she added, but you know, nobody told you that at the bottom you would find old carcasses of beer beer bottles and cars and corpses and you know, which was a kind of comparing the mind, you know, sort of the stuff of the mind at the bottom. So we want the clarity it's a nice, peaceful, calm ocean, you know. But we don't want to see anything that's underneath, you know. We just want to stay floating. You know what you feel like when you float on water? It's really nice. So not only do you don't want to look inside, you just want to look at the sky, beautiful sky, not me, not mine, it's so far away. We don't have any problem in terms of ad- attachment or identification, you know. When you look at the sky... But when you look at the waters, I mean, you find the old carcass of, then it's not as pleasant. You don't want to be looking at dead body underneath there. Right? So, late again. It's not too late, actually. I realized the start, but it's not, it's not early. <laughs> but you still, I don't know how many of you are half asleep. No? Okay. So, I think we need to close now. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No? One vital, absolutely, question that cannot wait until tomorrow. <laughs> when are we going to sleep? <laughs> no? Okay. So, we can do... Uh,